Atamarie, welcome to First Up. It's Rapare. It's Thursday, the 23rd of February. Ko Nathan Rarere aho. Coming up, Surf Life Savings. Matt Williams on the theft of critical radio equipment from Piha. Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni on flood recovery efforts across the country and in West Auckland, where residents still are without power and they're feeling a bit forgotten. And we get access to Auckland's coastal community of Karekare, where cut-off residents recount the harrowing night of the cyclone when a slip brought houses down onto the road. We were trapped on quite a small section of Karekare Road, which is a pretty steep gradient. It was still raining horrendously, and we had some little kids and members of the public in the back of cars. We welcome to First Up, Nathan Rarity here, and we kick off today in London, and it's our correspondent, Ellie J, who's with us. Morena, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Nathan. How are you? I'm good. So tell me about this. Shamima Begum, who was the, the or Shamima Begum, who's the, the ISIS bride, uh, she was trying to challenge having her citizenship uh, stripped there, her British citizenship. She's lost her court challenge. So is, is that the end of the case? Yes, well, this is Shamima Begum. So she travelled to Syria in 2015 when she was 15 at the time and went to join Islamic State there. She married a fighter in the group um, then. She's now been in a camp in northern Syria for the past few years. And it was, you're right, in 2019 that she was stripped of her British citizenship. So she's unable to, she's stateless really at the moment. She's unable to return um, to Britain. And since then, there have been a number of court cases and now appeals um, saying that this removal of her citizenship was unlawful and also stressing now that she's, or what they're saying is she's a victim of trafficking, that she was groomed while she was in the UK to leave the UK to join Islamic State. So it wasn't, in a way, it wasn't her who was on trial today. It's the decision of the then Home Secretary. So it was Sajid Javid who was Home Secretary in 2019. And so this was the latest appeal against the removal of her citizenship. So a judge now has decided that uh, it wasn't it wasn't unlawful for Sajid Javid to remove her citizenship from her. But in this statement as well, they've also said that there was credible reason to believe that she may have been um, trafficked to Syria. But despite that, the decision of the Home Secretary then was not unlawful. So she won't regain her British citizenship. She will have to stay in northern Syria at the moment. And I mean, in, in this judgment, it read that reasonable people will differ in how much they believe she went voluntarily or if she was groomed to go. And it's it's interesting as well to see the public conversation here in that vein is divided. So some papers, some news outlets are kind of displaying her as, uh, as out to fool the British public, out to do what whatever she can to kind of come back here and also a, a threat to security. Um, some quite full-on opinion pieces in this vein. But on the other side, lots saying this is kind of a dereliction of duty from the UK and that despite the court saying this, that she is a victim. She was very young and in the UK when when she was groomed to leave. And this is kind of the government abdicating responsibility for her. Mm. Yeah, I'll bet there would be some uh, quite quite hefty opinion pieces on that one. Let's move to this. So Nicola Bully, obviously that case really has captured the world there. Also an investigation going on now into a police visit to Nicola Bully's house in the lead up to her disappearance. What's the latest there? Yes, so sadly, I mean, she was her body was found after a three-week search earlier this 
week, but the latest on this is the police had referred themselves to a watchdog over this visit uh, an officer made to her home 10 days before she went missing. And so now it's the Independent Office for Police Conduct who are saying that they're going to they're going to start looking into this. So Lancashire Police um, had referred themselves and now this independent investigation is going to start into that. So they're just kind of saying to us at the moment that it's the early stages of this investigation. They're going to look into that, uh, that visit that was made and sort of what happened there as well. There's also the fact that Lancashire Police, on top of this, are conducting an inquiry into themselves over their handling of the case. That's after they released all this very personal information about Nicola Bully um, a, a week or so ago. They were talking about what medication she was taking, how um, she was kind of quite deeply affected by um, menopausal symptoms as well, the fact she was struggling with them. Uh, they told everyone she had had previous problems with alcohol, things like this that are irrelevant to the case. So there's that investigation going on too. And at the moment, there's lots of criticism of the media. So when her family read out a statement after she had been identified, they said Sky News and ITV News haven't left us alone. They've been calling us consistently to ask for interviews. Uh, the media, there's generally been quite a high level of criticism all round of this media attention into this case and the way that's played out and also the social media attention that we've been talking about before. I mean, whilst she has been found, it kind of feels like this at the moment, this case isn't over and there's more to hear, especially from how the police handled this. Yeah. Ellie, thank you so much for your time. Our correspondent from London, that was Ellie J. That's 12 past five already. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Our next correspondent is likely the world's most northerly Samoan, I think, at the moment. Dr. Anita purcell Sherland uh, joins us from Sweden. Uh, Talofa, how are you? Talofa, morning, Nathan. Fine, thank you. <laughs> so tell me this. China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, is in Moscow meeting with President Putin. What Are the two, story, are the two countries cozying up here? What do we know? Well, basically, Wednesday's meeting um, between the two men is a showcase of uh, deepening ties of which both say the relationship has no limits. Now, during his meeting with Vladimir Putin, Yang Wang Yi said that a crisis is an opportunity with regards to the international situation. And he said that the Sino-Russian relationship was never dictated by any third parties. Now, both leaders emphasize the importance of multipolar approaches to international affairs, which is a worldview rejecting what China China describes as the United States unipolar approach to dominating global leadership. Now, China has claimed impartiality over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's refused to condemn Moscow and supports the Kremlin, which blames NATO for provoking the conflict. Now, the US and European nations have expressed concern that China could provide arms and ammunition to Russia. Uh, but at the moment, Russia, uh, China denies this. And it's all about meetings in Europe, because while this is going on, President Biden from the United States is in Poland meeting with NATO's East European states at the same time. 
Yeah, as mentioned earlier in the news bulletin, as part of his four-day European tour, President Biden will meet with the, uh, the or has met with the heads of the NATO states of Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, and Lithuania, Lithuania, which are collectively known as the Bucharest Nine. Now, the aim is to discuss ways to strengthen NATO's eastern flank, and the Bucharest Nine countries worry that Putin could move to take military action against them next if he succeeds in Ukraine. And, well, look, military action gets a bit worrying, particularly where you see that Russia has suspended a nuclear arms control treaty with with the US. Um, this, that's quite scary to me, the START treaty it was called. Yeah, for the last 50 years, Russia and the US have had an arms control treaty. And in 2010, Moscow and Washington agreed to a new strategic arms reduction treaty or START. And that was extended until 2026. Now, together, Russia and the US hold about 90% of the world's nuclear warheads. And Russia has the largest stockpile with around 6,000 warheads. Now, the START treaty caps the number of strategic nuclear warheads that the United States and Russia can deploy. And of course, France and the the United Kingdom and the European Union have called on the Kremlin to reverse its decision to suspend its participation in the treaty, while the US says Russia's decision is irresponsible. I'm going to move it to somewhere different. We're going to go to rail travel here. Trains in Spain. There's a bit of a problem in the... Why would they have trains that are too big for their tunnels? This is not ideal. No, it's not because somebody forgot the measuring tape. But anyway, um, Spain's Secretary of State for Transport and the head of the state rail company have resigned amid public and political anger over dozens of new trains, which in the end are too big to fit through some tunnels. Now, the trains were ordered for two northern Spanish regions. Now, the state rail operator is modernising its narrow-gauge commuter trains and medium-distance trains in Asturias and Cantabria at the cost of 200 158 million euros but at the moment they can't be used because they're too wide so they've got to buy some new ones <laughs> sorry well that is uh what a shame <laughs> there we go i uh, thank you very much dr anita purcell shuland who was with us there out of sweden it does seem like something that someone would have checked beforehand eh? like the oh, whole how wide should we make it oh no hang on that's not good anyway back home let's go to some sport now not a lot has changed as far as hurricanes power coach victoria grant is concerned despite becoming the first female head coach of a super rugby opiki team uh, grant uh, was promoted after being an assistant last season when they finished second to the chiefs manawa the power play manawa in their opening game this weekend she told barry guy that the key to her side success this year will be based around their power for us, it's really around bringing the physicality. Our girls are really physical, and that intent is strong. And it's just tidying up the, I guess, the fundamentals around that for us. The other big part of our game is our continuity. We've got players that are really exciting with ball in hand, really good skill set across our forward pack and our backs. So making use of that as well. Uh, and you personally, how are you feeling? You know, first game sort of in charge. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about. Uh, really excited about it. Um, I think we're in a really good place, you know, like a really good place, really happy with how our group is connected because that's one of the biggest things for our team. If we feel connected off the field, you're going to see it on the field. Yeah, but I'm just excited. Great coaching group. 
we actually don't feel much pressure. We just want to get out there and play. It's sort of groundbreaking in a way you, you know, being the first woman in charge, head, head coach sort of thing. I'm assuming you don't even sort of yeah. think of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. I don't really think about that. You know, I've been around for a long time now and I've been head coaches before, so head coach before, sorry. So, yeah, for me it's like I'm excited about being here. I'm excited about being in Super Rugby Opaki, you know, like I feel like it's like the next step for women's rugby like growth wise in New Zealand so I'm just really happy and grateful to be a part of that and be able to develop these girls coming through. I've been around a lot of these girls, coached a lot of these girls in like under 17s, 18 so age group wise so you know like I'm really grateful to be here when they're out playing in open women's you know so and help guide them around that so yeah. How's the game developed from you know in the last 12 months perhaps? Yeah, you know, like I think the women's sport in general, as well as obviously the Black Ferns, doing a great job with the World Cup, and it was sort of like a perfect storm with everything. And we're really riding that, you know. We've seen a lot more interest in our game, a lot more like content and things coming um, our way, which is great. You know, like these girls deserve that. I think one of the pressures or challenges going forward is the growth of other sports in the women's game and the professionalism that that brings. So really keeping our players homegrown, you know, within our region um, or within New Zealand is going to be a challenge. Yeah, because there's a lot of other sports. So you have a couple of key players that were part of the Black Ferns, you know, what have, what have they brought or, you know, what have the rest of your players sort of taken from that? Yeah, yeah. You know, Jonah is an expert around line-out. So that's really great for our, all our locks especially to grow. We've got Kahu who's a young lock and Rachel uh, Rakato as well and they learn a lot off Jonah. You know, just Jonah, she's a big game player, Jonah, and she loves those moments. So that's something that, you know, you just don't get taught anywhere else. So that's exciting. Um, Muzza brings a lot of energy, you know, in that front row. She's got a great skill set about her and you'll see that in our games as well. Like, the ball might be on the other side of the field and you can hear her, you know, just her intensity on the on the far opposite side of the field. You know, she she just brings a different kind of energy and intent to the girls um, and, and she's quite a leader in that space. Because what you probably don't see, or maybe if you're a keen eye, you will see, she's very good defensively. Yeah, she's amazing on attack and everyone sees that, but she's very good defensively. She's got a really good read for the game, so she actually leads that space quite well. Chiefs, first up, Manoa. Yeah. It'll be exciting going against my mate, Maza, who's the head coach there. But yeah, we're for us, we're just confident in working away at what we do, we're just chipping away, and we're excited about it being in Levin. A home game for us, we've got a couple of our players from that region, so... Yeah, we're really excited. Beating challenge uh, for the title this year? Oh, 100%. 100% we are. Hurricanes POA coach Victoria Grant there talking to Barry Guy. It's 21 minutes past five. It's Nathan Rarity here at First Up in RNZ National. Coming up, the sad story behind what Rolling Stone magazine calls the Rolling Stone's greatest song. And surf life savings Matt Williams on the theft of critical radio equipment from Piha. Opportunists have stolen nearly $35,000 worth of equipment from Piha Surf Lifesaving Facilities. 17 handheld radios and a laptop were taken from the club's temporary Portacom club rooms overnight. But to Surf Lifesaving, that loss is just the tip of the iceberg. Northern Region CEO Matt Williams told me how the burglary will impact their services. Laptops, 
radio equipment and radio base sets, they're the key tools that lifeguards use to keep in contact when they're on the beach to get back to our patrol hub at the Marine Rescue Centre in Auckland. It's really the lifesaver to the lifesaver. It's got a value of the total value is about $35,000 to replace all of those things at today's cost. But they have no value to the people who stole them because they're on a private radio network. So uh, a real inconvenience for us to have to go through and claim the insurance on that. And a really sad time, I think, to damage a service that's so important to the community. Well, like you say, it is so important to the community. They're not just stealing off you. They're endangering the lives of people who, who you, you know, you people put yourselves in danger to help there as well. So t- tell us about this. Have you have you got like a give a little page going or something like that that might be able to help? Yeah, the, the club's put a quick response together to try and help fundraise some funds for that on the, on the give a little page. Uh, and that's on the United North PIHA social media. And that's the initial response. Yeah. I think while we're talking to the public, it's really important to acknowledge, yes, we've got the loss of these radios and it's frustrating. And, and it doesn't bode well because we know the community values us more than that. Mm. But of more gravity is the huge loss we're facing from damages from the floods of the surf life-saving environment. Mangafaiki and Surf Club has had a landslide, which has wiped that club out completely. Bethel Beach was washed away by flooding and has a building they cannot use. There's $8 million plus of unexpected capital works there. We have to raise those funds for just so lifeguards can be on the beach to do the job we've needed them to do for 100 years. Then on top of that, Karyatahi and United North Piha Surf Club are also needing to do rebuilds to their clubs, which need funding. And that's a total $12 million of cost, which we don't have the income for, not to do some great new things in the future, but to be where you need us to be tomorrow. And that's a real problem for all of us. And we'll be doing a lot of advocacy work to make sure that gets funded because our volunteers simply don't have the resource or time to be looking to rebuild those clubs when they're trying to continue on with their daily business. Matt, that's really generous of you to talk about everyone else that's you know part of these clubbies. I mean, gosh, the amount of amount of us in New Zealand who've had experience either helped by clubbies or at least we've seen them around keeping things safe. This sort of money is money well spent. There's got to be one of these companies out here that's made a record profit this year. Come on, get, get behind the Surf Lifesavers, right? At least there's a start. Absolutely, and and not to admonish our current funders because we've survived so well from our partners over the last 100 years, but we actually need to have some certainty of funding, and we see central government as a a core funder of this because we're a service relied on by all of the public and businesses to New Zealand, and we really need certainty and security of this income so we can continue that service for future generations. And I think it's time to have that conversation about how hard our volunteers need to work for the funding that they require to do their work mm. and who's best to fund that going forward. And we've had some contributions from central government, which have been very helpful since 2020. And I think now it's time to look at the future and what kind of support we need to continue going forward. So look, if there's any philanthropic companies or individuals out there that want to help, look me up, Matt Williams, Chief Executive, Surf Lifesaving Northern Region. But also to central government, I think we really need to start having those conversations about how we provide the direct support, the capital infrastructure needed to provide these services. And we're going to be repairing all of the roads down to the beaches, and we need to make sure there's a building there that the lifeguards patrol out of to keep people safe when they get there. To me, it's pragmatic, but I know the realist me says that's a big ask. So time to at least start having that conversation. Surf Life Savings, Matt Williams. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. 
Uh, this is the day of our life that we call the 23rd of February and we have done for a very long time. Happy 40th birthday to uh, two celebrities. Emily Blunt and Aziz Ansari both turned 40 years old today. Also, happy birthday to you, Rotary Clubs of the World. The first one was founded on this day in 1905 by Paul P. Harris. This day in 1996, the movie Strang... Uh, Strangpotting. Trainspotting <laughs> came out. That was the Danny Boyle film uh, off the book there by Irvin Welsh. Pretty defining movie for Gen X there. The budget for that was one and a half million pounds. It did okay. It made 48 million pounds. And I want to tell the story of this song that is playing behind me right now. So this is the Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter. It's the opening track of Let It Bleed. And Rolling Stone magazine ranks this as the greatest of the Rolling Stones songs. It's uh, number 13 overall in their greatest songs. Songs are fair, uh, uh, so many film soundtracks. Martin Scorsese loves it. He's put it in about three of his movies. But anyway, I'll tell you the story of this. This is the uh, uh, one of the few ones where you hear it almost comes across like a duet. So the Rolling Stones are recording it on this night in 1969 and the producer Jimmy Miller looks and goes, Mick, it's missing something. It needs a female singer in this. Let's get a female singer, and Mick hadn't really envisaged that. So first what they did was they called up Bonnie Bramlett, who was the first one they thought of. Bonnie Bramlett's boyfriend, uh, sorry, her husband Delaney, was very jealous of Mick Jagger, and he went, no, I don't trust that guy. No, you're not going and singing with him. So they phone a 20-year-old gospel singer called Mary Clayton. The phone call happens at 11 o'clock at night. She comes down to the studio in her curlers and contributes her parts, basically wearing pyjamas, and they're all amazed because of the power that Mary Clayton has and this is a recording you can have with just Mary's vocals so we'll just so we'll just try and bring this up And you can hear the power that's coming out of her voice here. And at the time, as a gospel singer, she was quite challenged about what she had to sing about there. The sad part is she sang so hard and gave it so much effort that she was actually four months pregnant at the time. She had a miscarriage upon returning home after recording that song. She said it always left a bit of a bitter taste in her mouth because of it being associated with that. However, she recorded her own version of it. She's now very, very proud of being on that. And she still performs this day on 2014. In the year 2014, she had both legs amputated at the knees after a car accident. Her album came out in 2021 called Beautiful Scars. Her name is Mary Clayton, spelt M-E-R-R Clayton, and she is the voice and the power behind Gimme Shelter. It's business, it's business time. That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business. And he's Giles Beckford over there. Kia ora, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lisa Fisher, of course, is the one who now gets all the plaudits on the uh, live gigs for the Stones singing that uh, yeah. song, doesn't she? Yeah. And she does, she does a fantastic job, but the Mary Clayton story is a really stunning story. Oh, she, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Gee, just She sounded it. like she was one hell of a good woman. Yeah, she does. Well, um, tell me about this, the Reserve Bank. Uh, what's the message right. that they've well, got for banks? Look, there was no surprise that they raised the cash rate by half a percentage point, 50 basis points yesterday. That was sort of baked in. They didn't give a really much of a thought to the impact of the weather event are saying their best contribution in reconstruction and recovery is actually to get the lid on inflation, and that's what they're going to keep doing. But there are quite a few side comments uh, in the commentary there. 
about the banks. And one of them was that the banks, and you know, obviously reserve banks aren't going to come out and really diss the banks, but it was uh, an admonishment um, that the banks really haven't done enough, don't do enough for many, many communities, uh, and that their concentration of services and the digital platforms and the like uh, is leaving a lot of people shortchanged. And one comment made by Adrian Orr was, he says, nothing more distressing than seeing a cafe serving hot coffee beside a bank whose ATM doesn't work. One of them had a generator. Mm. Uh, and the, one of the other comments was uh, about the need for the banks to start offering higher deposit rates uh, to savers as well as uh, you know, raising their rates uh, for borrowers. And, of course, that gap is one reason why banks are able to make such big profits, because they're borrowing uh, cheap from savers and they're lending more expensively to those who need it from you know, mortgagees and the like. So mm. real message to the uh, banks there Start thinking about your social license to operate. Start thinking about uh, the people that you're there to serve, not just your bottom line and your profits. Now, they weren't that that bald about it, but that was essentially what uh, Adrian Orr and others were saying. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you have to say, you know, just listening to your conversation there with Matt Williams from Surf Life Saving, you know, $12 million needed to rebuild those clubs. You suggested, well, we need some good corporates with good profits there. Well, who's got good profits around exactly. at the moment? Get your flag on that and everyone ba- love you. Come on. Ba- banks banks could do it. Um, you know, ASB, just as an example, sent back uh, to its Australian owners $400 million dividend payments. Uh, out of their billion-dollar profits um, the other month. So, yeah, it's there. We're going to see some other big numbers from the banks. Um, I think they will come increasingly under scrutiny, uh, and I think it's up to customers to voice their views uh, about the way they get treated by banks and the way the banks operate uh, in their districts as well as um, nationally. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Giles. You can hear more uh, from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Look, while civil defence volunteers are sorting through the destruction caused by Cyclone Gabrielle, some amazing tales of survival are starting to come through, and some of those rescues involve pets and livestock. Animal charity Hoo-Ha has been working round the clock in Hawke's Bay. It's currently caring for eight cats, 22 dogs, a pigeon and five goldfish that were plugged from stormwater, uh, plucked sorry, from stormwater drains and brought in in Ziploc bags. I asked the founder, Carolyn Press-McKenzie, to share some of their stories. Well, they were coming in covered in silt, which is incredibly toxic to them, so we were shampooing them, vet-checking. But emotionally, these animals were just almost frozen and shut down. I think the shock that we're feeling, obviously, it, the same effect happens to the animals. So you sort of try and sort of hug them, give them squishy blankets, give them the most comfortable experience while they're with us. My team are incredible at caring for animals, but it's not until their owner comes in the door. And we had one little dog, Carly, her owner had been airlifted, but Carly wouldn't get on the helicopter, so uh, she was left on the roof. And it was that the owner was obviously, I can't even imagine the terror she was going through in the moment, but she thought Carly was gone. When she went back to her house, everything was gone. She'd lost 
as many people did, lost everything. And then she heard Carly was with us. So she walked in the door and there were floods of tears from everyone. And she said, I've lost everything, but now I've got Carly, I've got everything. So anyway, everyone's really tired, but these moments, they just mean, they do mean everything because having your family back with you and safe and pets are family. And that's what it's all about, really. I was thinking how sad it must be. And I, I guess I've got a Disney films or that in my head. Like the little dogs that are there, because dogs in particular feel it more so. Do their heads turn to look at the door when the door opens in the hope that their owners are coming through? Yeah, honestly, they do. We travel around. I, this is a very strange business that we're in with mm. Hoo-Ha. We somehow have developed a niche for providing emergency shelter across the country. And weirdly, we're busy. <laughs> I don't like it. I think mm. I'd rather we weren't needed but we've done you know nelson fires christchurch earthquakes well you name it westport floods several times just we've been there and we've supported communities and the animals truly are affected and they are sitting displaced they are confused they feel all of the anxieties and all of the the panic that everyone else does our job is to give them some joy in their life and make them feel like they're at home while they're waiting. So we put so much effort into that comfort. But you're right, the dogs particularly are so connected to their owners and their families, and the cats actually too. I'm not sure about the goldfish. They don't seem particularly bothered. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, if people are listening to this and they're like, oh, I'm lucky I I didn't didn't lose my animal, but they want to maybe help you out there. What, What is a useful thing to donate towards animal rescue? Like, like, what do you need? The thing that we're getting, we've had amazing volunteers come and dog walk. There's a lot of them now. It's a sort of like a small crowd turns up four times a day to help walk these dogs and, and give them some joy and fun, which is kind of cool. But what we're doing now, we've transitioned into sort of the recovery stage where we're working with Tumu Group, who are working with the Ag Helicopter guys. So every day, our complete, well, apart from the animal care, our focus is getting dry kibble onto helicopters and then they're flying off into the rural community to get to those who are cut off and affected and perhaps don't have, you know, they may have 12 working dogs and absolutely no food. So for us right now, it's dry kibble. The wet food and everything is lovely for the community. So we've got like a pet pantry. The community can come in and get blankets, leads, kennels, just whatever they like. It's all been donated and there is literally mountains of, of product that we want to get to people who who are just struggling at the moment. But for us, the mission is to get that food to the animals who haven't yet been discovered or haven't yet been seen or helped. One more thing, I, I guess, this is for people that may have become disattached for, from their pets or whatever, if they think, oh, they might have heard this and go, well, maybe, maybe my animal might be there and they're just hearing this for the first time, how do they get hold of you and how, how can they come and see or is there some, do you have a website they can check on? Yeah, so we do have a website, www.huha.org.nz. We also have an amazing Facebook community, 85,000 people follow us at Huha NZ. But there's also lost, um, sorry, found pets, and that's through the Companion Animal Register. And everything we do, even in real life, we put every found animal onto the Companion Animal Register website, so anyone in New Zealand can check in on that. There's also the SPCA, like shout out to the SPCA. They are grafting out there 
they're honestly amazing people. You just want to hug them when you see them coming towards you covered in silt. I think there's a lot of Facebook pages people bounce around on. We're based at the race course in Hastings and 300 Prospect Road. All of the animals in our care at the moment are reunited and a lot of them are just waiting for owners to be able to find a way to, to bring them back back home or to a friend or family's place. But we've just got two kittens, a litter of five weenie kittens, a little three-day-olds and the goldfish looking for their parents again. Carolyn Press McKenzie from Hoo-Ha. It is, we'll call it 20 to 6, shall we? I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up at RNZ National. Still to come, we get to speak to the Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel Sepuloni, on flood recovery efforts across the country and also about West Auckland there too, where some residents are still without power. And we get access to Auckland's coastal community of Karekare, where cut-off residents recount that harrowing night of the cyclone. <laughs> The professionals of the RNZ machine are at Morning Report. It's Corin Dan at the controls today. Kia ora, how are you? Ratamaria, good morning, Nathan. Uh, busy show this morning. We'll keep a close watch on the weather situation for the east coast and flood affected regions with this southerly making its way up the country. It is going to be raining. It is raining in some parts of the east coast, so that is a, uh, a bummer, really, isn't it? It's annoying uh, mm. and not going to help with cleanup efforts at all. Uh, we'll be across the official cash rate hike, what that means uh, for borrowers for the housing market for savers uh, banks got a little bit of a uh, little bit of a hurry up from the reserve bank governor about the uh, savings rates not quite being where they should be that was interesting uh, and also a lovely chat to Blair Tickner's father John who has his house has been totaled mm. he runs a digging hire company he's out there busy as helping in the Hawks Bay doing what he can uh, and trying to watch a son debut and play cricket for New Zealand. So, um, yeah, no, really, really fascinating and a, a, an amazing, uh, amazing guy. Yeah, good one. Hey, thank you very much, Corin. We look forward to that. Uh, well, a cut-off residents in the West Auckland beachside settlement of Karekare are counting their blessings despite still having no power or road access. That's nine days after the cyclone. Locals are relying on helicopter deliveries for long-life food and fuel for generators, and 16 slips have cut-off road access, which is limited to emergency services. Multiple houses have been lost, and harrowing stories are now emerging of narrow escapes. Our reporter, Leonard Powell, is the first reporter to visit Karekare. It's been nine days without power for Karekare's 300-strong community, and there's no timeline of when it's going to return. Road access is severely limited, so Karekare volunteer fire brigade chief, Toby Hyman, picks me up at the top of Lone Cody Road. Driving a fire station ute to make the 13-kilometre road trip in, we pass contractors repairing a slip, but the story behind it is alarming for locals. So this is Fulton Hogan repairing a slip that happened five years ago. Um, it's taken them this long to prioritise that repair, <coughs> which, <laughs> yeah, might be a sign of things to come if it's taken five years to get the funding to be able to um, prioritise that slip. How long is it going to take to fix this road? Toby's been able to make it to his job as a marine engineer 37 kilometres away in Hobsonville, but only thanks to a neighbour lending him a motorbike. Yeah, pretty much everybody I've spoken to that doesn't know someone out here, it's news to them that there's been such a catastrophe in Karikari. Food and fuel deliveries are still being helicoptered into the community hub, which has been run from a marquee on Sarah and Ian Cannon's front lawn. Yesterday was pretty busy because we had MSD and Civil Defence and Salvation Army, so I'd probably say 
50 to 80 people through yesterday, which was our busiest day. People are really hanging out for the fresh food, which we haven't had a delivery of yet, so people popping in and checking on that. But um, yeah, generally 40 to 50 a day. So the food behind us, you were saying a lack of fresh food, there's a lot of packaged food and, and long-lasting food. What's been the most popular out of what we see here? For the kids, it's been the two-minute noodles and the packets of chips. Um, never, usually never usually get those. We had a lovely donation from a local yesterday. Went on a helicopter ride to the supermarket and bought eggs. So that was that they've been really popular and fresh bread. But yeah, we had another lovely donation from a guy at Peha who stripped his orchard for us. So all that fruit went yesterday. So people are really looking forward to the fresh food that's supposed to be coming today. Back in the car. Toby says locals, with the help of emergency management, have been able to do some work on the road. So this is one of the most significant slips that our locals got into their own diggers and, mm. and carved out the road wider so that cars could pass. But as you can see, it's pretty hairy. About three quarters of the road has slipped down a bank for about 100 metres. Basically the bank that was along one side of the road has been carved out by, like I said, locals on their diggers to sort of widen the road enough to get a vehicle past. So we're going to drive over there now. Um, it's not my favourite part of the road to drive over. We navigate past more slips, but the worst is yet to come. As we reach sea level, we come across houses that have slipped away from the hill. And this is known as the valley in Cuddy Cuddy. Um, yeah. it, um, it took the worst hit, really where the majority of the red stickers and yellow stickers happened. As you can see why, the houses coming down the, down the bank there. And this is a house that was completely across the road that they've just bulldozed into a pile really to open the road so it's full of everyone, full of their position still. And Toby describes harrowing scenes from around 9.30 on the Monday night of the cyclone. He points out what's left of a house where a family escaped just minutes before it slipped 20 metres. They just got out of the house before it slipped down the hill. It, was, it used to be up there on the hill. Now it's down here on the road. We loaded them into personal vehicles to try and evacuate them up the hill. Um, as we were going up the hill, a landslide appeared in front of the Utes. And it was, it was how I imagine the old cowrie diggers when they blocked up their dams and then let them go had huge logs and rocks and boulders and just the roar of of the water coming down in front of us and a, a brand new waterfall that never existed before. So we're attempting to turn the vehicles around and it happened behind us as well. Um, so we were trapped on quite a small section of Cuddy Cuddy Road which is a, a, a pretty steep gradient. Um, it was still raining horrendously and we had some little kids and members of the public in the back of cars and we had to make a split second decision really to put the vehicles in four-wheel drive and drive through a moving slip to get them out. But despite the devastation, Toby realises how lucky his community has been. Certainly don't want to woe is me, our community's so damaged, uh, poor us. There's so many worse off communities right now. In a way we're really lucky that nobody's died out here some people have lost their houses and that's horrific and horrible but you know we can we can fix it we can rebuild it um, you can't get people back that you've lost and um, obviously some communities like Napier and, um, and whatnot have, have been hit so much harder than us but it's still important to talk about our stories out here and and what's going on
It is nine minutes to six. Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni will be heading off to the Pacific Islands Forum in Fiji today in place of Prime Minister Chris Hipkins. And we're lucky enough to steal some time uh, off her now. Um, thank you very much uh, for being here. Kia ora, how are you? I'm good. Morena. Hey, so look, we just heard there from the residents there in Karikari, and it's amazing, 450k or so away from Taradale and Esk Valley, and they're thinking, oh, gosh, things could have been worse for us. But they're still without power. They're still cut off from roads and that. What what do you say to them and, and also residents around Titirangi and other areas of Northland and that that are, are still cut off? How, how long do you think it will be before we can get them back online? Oh, look, we're moving as quickly as possible. I think there were... You know, a couple of, over a couple of hundred thousand New Zealanders that lost power because of the recent weather events, and now we're about 6,700 are still without power, and we do know how difficult that is. I think there's still 900 people in Auckland that haven't got their power. Um, absolutely feel for everyone that's been affected across the country, including those in Karikaria, which is not far from uh, my own home. In fact, I was just talking to uh, people that I know in Karikari yesterday, and it's really difficult. You know, even the ones that have been yellow stickered, uh, where they can use parts of their houses, but in this instance, they can't access the bedrooms because it's not safe. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a long journey for them, and I absolutely empathise for the situation that they're in and, and the, the circumstances that they're facing. I think the the people that are fixing the power lines right now are the absolute superheroes of New Zealand at the moment. It's incredible. Let's go to Tairawhiti and also Hawke's Bay as well. Like you said, there's there's all sorts of stickering going on. Some homes won't be able to be saved. They're probably going to need to, to be red zone. When will you um, be, able, be able to give the homeowners um, some certainty as to what you can provide for them? Oh, look, we'll continue to make decisions as we go along and um, this is the important part of setting up the structure that Chris Hipkins has talked about. And um, we need to understand at the local level what is needed rather than make some Wellington-based blanket rules for everyone across the country. And we're going to move as swiftly as we can to do that. So the, do you have any idea of how many people have applied for flood grants? Um, so as of yesterday, about 72,000 people had applied oh. for the civil defence grant. And... I think just over $36 million had gone out the door. And that's just the civil defence grant. There's there's a whole lot of people that have been accessing other supports from community, iwi organisations, um, obviously from friends and neighbours and family. Uh, so we know there there are a large number that have been affected. Well, we'll get to writing in a second, but just while we're talking about uh, money going out in subsidies and that, I know businesses in both regions calling for wage subsidies for themselves, but also, I guess, for workers too, because they've got mortgages to pay, rents probably uh, to pay there as well. So um, any uh, why don't, why don't, is there any point to just saying, why don't we just roll out these wage subsidies or what do you need to consider? What we need to consider is what is required on the ground and making sure that we're able to support uh, businesses where it's required. Uh, you know, I think um, we've had a number of ministers visit various regions that have been affected by uh, the the weather events, and certainly, you know, some some um, you know businesses in the horticulture industry have have almost been decimated um, because of the the impacts of the weather events. Some have had little effect, and that's businesses across the board. So we need to be making sure that whatever support we put in place is targeted and is what is wanted uh, at the regional level rather than just coming in over the top and saying, this is what we think you need. 
Right. Let, let's get on to roading because obviously our friends in Northland, we see them, they're like, well, we're cut off, we really need this as our lifeline. And there are all sorts of roads all around the Upper North Island that were destroyed. Huge weather event. How do you prioritise which roads to fix first? Oh, look, that's going to be a, a massive job for our Minister for Transport and Waka Kotahi. Um, and obviously, um, there will be a process that's put in place to prioritise there. In some instances, it might be better to build back differently um, than what's currently been in place because of the fact that it's not just this weather event that's seen particular roads wiped out. Um, so some real thought needs to be given to that. And I don't want to uh, preempt those decisions. I think that that certainly is um, front of mind for, for the Minister for Transport. Is there a bit of a timeline just to give them some hope to hang on to? Because, yeah, I agree with you. That is a big job. Well, they've already started moving and um, already started to make repairs where they can. Uh, and so it is a progress, uh, a process. And, and so I I can't put a timeline on all of the roads that have been affected by the weather events. Right. You, you head off to the Pacific Islands Forum in, in Fiji today. So how important is it for us to still have a presence there? Well, absolutely important. Um, this is a massive region, the Pacific, and our um, Pacific Island neighbours uh, are really important partners for us as, as a country. And so we need to have a presence. We need to be sitting at that table uh, with all of them. Uh, we need to be treating it as an equal partnership. Um, and, and we need to make sure those relationships are strong. I know Fiji sending a team to help in the cyclone recovery, which is very, which we're obviously all very grateful for. Have any other Pacific Island nations also offered help? Look, I believe there have been other offers, um, and so you know that's certainly something that's been weighed up. But just great appreciation for for Fiji's offer. I think in the end now there's about 33 that will be sent over from Fiji, and it's a mix of people uh, from the Defence Force with NEMA equivalent um, backgrounds as well. And so their insights and experience and support will be welcomed on the ground. Mm. Will you be looking at redeploying any of the REC workers that, that are here at the moment currently to, to help with the cleanup? Can we switch across to get them paid to help with that? Yeah, sure, sure. There's some consideration for that, but many of them are still required. And so um, that that um, is something that, again, is an ongoing process. Uh, they they are so integral uh, to our horticulture and viticulture industries, um, but where they can't take up roles, then sure there should be some consideration. I've also asked for advice, which I'll be getting this weekend, on the overall redeployment strategy. Uh, there'll be a lot of New Zealanders that um, perhaps lose jobs because of what has happened. Mm. Uh, so how do we re- redeploy them and support them into the jobs that will be available um, because of the, the cyclone or the flooding? Uh, and how do we do that quickly? Because they will need the work as well as the employers will need the workers. And so it's gonna be really important that we've got a coordinated redeployment strategy. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. All the best there in Fiji, the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand, Carmel uh, Sepuloni, there joining us today on First Up. So hopefully you got some information that can help you uh, on your way there. Morning Report is next. Yeah, we have got so much feedback that's coming. Thank you so much for that. Uh, You can always listen back to First Up whenever you like. Uh, Just download the podcast. That's what all the cool kids are doing. Uh, From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day. We're back in your ears up all.